Just a note before we start, our show talks about touchy subjects that may be difficult for some of our listeners. Take care of yourself. If you feel you need to seek help, see the links at the end of our show notes for resources. Welcome to Touchy Subjects, the podcast that aims to make those awkward conversations around domestic and sexual violence just a little less awkward. I'm Sean. I'm Allie. And I'm Sierra. And in today's episode, we'll be discussing sexual violence. Just as with our episode on domestic violence, we wanted to really make sure that our listeners have a good foundation of some of the topics that we're going to be uh, covering more in depth in our show. So if you are returning from our domestic violence episode, thank you for listening. Um, And we hope to give you some really great information that'll move us forward with our podcast. Starting out with like a basic definition of what sexual violence is, is when someone is forced or manipulated or otherwise conned into sexual activity or behavior or anything like that without their explicit consent or permission. And sexual violence can be experienced by anybody. Right. It's not going to discriminate on who that person is. So regardless of that person's gender identity, sexual orientation, race, religion, everyone can be a victim. Right. So when we use the term sexual violence, what it really is, is it's it's an umbrella term for multiple forms of violence um, that include things like rape, sexual assault, uh, child sexual abuse, any kind of unwanted sexual contact, um, and as well as sexual harassment and exploitation. So each of these forms of violence could really be their own episode, though, um, and they, they're definitely not, it's not an exhaustive list of what sexual violence includes. So it definitely takes many forms. Yeah. And a lot of times when we see sexual violence, it ends up getting portrayed in the media as this strange dude who's now assaulting some woman because she's really drunk at the bar. Right. That's going to be that most typical case that we're seeing portrayed in media. But realistically, that's not what you're going to see the most often. Yeah, for sure. The reality is that non-stranger sexual assault is the most common type of sexual assault, regardless of what the behavior is. Um, Most often, a victim knows the person that has assaulted them. And so a lot of these portrayals in the media of what sexual violence looks like is not only wrong, right, or deceiving, but it's dangerous because it gives people a false sense of security around people that they are acquainted with. And that's not to say that those stranger assaults aren't going to happen because they do happen. They're just not happening nearly as much. 84% of the time if someone's assaulted, they knew that person before the assault took place. Okay, so when it comes to sexual violence, the one thing that all of these acts have in common is that there's a lack of consent. And consent is something that's really important, and we want all of you to truly understand this. Consent is like getting permission or giving permission before you do any sort of act, whether that's kissing or hugging or having sex or whatever the case might be. However, it's important to know that only yes means yes. Consent isn't a no means no. That's not where it stops because silence is no, hesitation is no, maybe is no. The only thing that means yes is yes. And just a couple more things about consent is that it has to be clear, enthusiastic, 
freely given. Consent is something that's going to look like a, hell yes, let's do this right now. Let's take off our clothes. Let's hug. Let's shake hands. Let's kiss. You know, you want both parties to be just as excited and just as into the act as each other are. So Sean, do you want to take that a little bit further and kind of break down consent just a little bit more? Yeah. So with consent, it's going to need to be there every single time. So just because someone's agreed to have sex with you last week, yesterday, this morning, it doesn't mean they've agreed to have sex with you tonight. It also needs to be there for every act. So just because someone's agreed to kiss you, it doesn't mean they've agreed to go any further than that. And it doesn't mean they've agreed to have sex with you, regardless of what you think kissing can lead to. Consent also needs to be freely given, like you said. So you can't try to force, pressure, convince, or coerce someone into doing something they didn't want to. And then also, it can be withdrawn. So by that I mean, let's say two people were in the heat of the moment enjoying what was happening. But then one of them decides they don't want to do this anymore. It needs to stop in that instant, or then it's considered assault. So when we're talking about consent, we're talking about these things in terms of that sexual encounter. But to begin that sexual encounter in the first place, there needs to be some things that are already in place to begin with. So the first one's age. So this does vary from state to state, but in the state of Michigan, it is 16. So what this is put in place for is to protect young people from older people who are acting predatory towards them. So I'm sure we all probably know a 13, 14, or 15-year-old who is having sex, and the cops aren't coming in and busting on the doors and arresting these people. Because again, this law is put in place to protect young people from much older people who are acting predatory. So if it is two people under the age of 16 and they are having sex, and it does go to court, which it might not, but if it does, it's probably just because one of the parents got involved and they weren't happy their kid was having sex. And that will look substantially different than it would if it was someone over the age of 16 and somebody under the age of 16. The next one is capacity. So capacity is both people understanding what's about to happen and understanding the consequences of those decisions. So, for example, along with age, capacity protects children. Because when a child is sexually assaulted, most often it's going to be by a family member or a family friend. And those people will be saying things like, this is what families do. Or, this is how we show each other we love each other. That child's not going to have the life experiences or the capacity to understand that's not true, and they're relying on the adults in their lives to protect them and not harm them. Capacity also protects the elderly in the care of a caregiver. A lot of people think elder abuse doesn't happen, but it does actually happen, especially in nursing homes. It also protects those with certain mental disabilities. Now, not all mental disabilities, but certain very severe ones. And then capacity also protects those who are under the influence of drugs and alcohol. Now, that one may sound just a little confusing because... We see people getting drunk and hooking up all the time. If we're watching TV shows or movies, if we're going to the bar, we see it happening there. So it happens quite frequently in our society. But what this law is put in place for is it says that those who are under the influence might not be making the best decisions for themselves or the same decisions they would have made had they been sober. But it also recognizes that there are people who will actively search out or put somebody in a situation to get them drunk or drugged with that sole purpose of taking advantage of them. The next one is disclosures. So by disclosures, I mean both people understanding what's about to happen so they can make the healthiest choices for themselves. So, for example, let's say two people were having sex, but one of their partners decides to record that situation without telling their partner. That person has not disclosed all the information to their partner, so then the person could be charged with sexual assault because all the information wasn't given to their partner beforehand. And the last one's a prohibited relationship. So a prohibited relationship will be any relationship where one person has more power over the other one just based on how the relationship is set up. So examples could be like a teacher and a student, a coach and a player, or a boss and an employee. Any situation where one person could put consequences on the other if they chose to say no. 
And in these situations, the age of consent goes up to 18. Now, just because both people are over the age of 18 doesn't necessarily make these types of relationships okay. Because those who work with at-risk populations have to abide by a certain code of conduct when they take their jobs. And that code of conduct says they'll keep really good boundaries of the people they're working with. So, for example, if a college professor and a student decide to have sex, if both are over the age of 18, they're not breaking new laws, but that professor is breaking their code of conduct. So they can be charged with either losing their job or their ability to ever teach again. Thank you, Sean, for all of that information. And for our listeners, I know that was a lot to take in. But one thing we really want you to really just pick up on and really, um, you know, take home with you is that when it comes to sexual violence, consent isn't there. And so that's why we dive so deep into the topic of consent and why we really want you to understand what consent truly means. Yeah, with consent, there's a lot of information, as we saw with what what Sean was telling us. But sometimes because of that, there's some gray areas with consent, which leads us into one of the most important things that we talk about today, which is reporting of sexual assault. Um, There are a lot of reasons, right, why somebody might choose to not report their sexual assaults. Um, and all of those different factors that we talked about with consent definitely play into that. But there are other reasons, too. For example, many survivors might feel some shame or embarrassment and may be hesitant to report because of some of those things that are going on inside of them. Yeah, or they might have that fear of not being believed because maybe they've heard from somebody who they did tell already, oh, what were you wearing? Or how much did you drink that night? So they're worried that when they do report it, they're just going to hear those same things from legal services. Or there's even that fear of retaliation. And this can take place when an abuser tells the victim, you can't tell anybody about what just happened or I'm going to do this to you. And, you know, makes that, turns it into a threatening encounter. And obviously, like, we could sit here and just continually list all of the reasons why somebody might not report. And it does start to get different, too, when you look at Um, a person's specific identities. So for men, they may not choose to report because they're worried about how that would make them look because they don't want to appear weaker. Or if they're a part of the LGBT community, they may be worried about potentially being outed by reporting the abuse that they've experienced. So depending on how a person identifies, there may be other barriers that are put in place to them choosing to report. Every sexual assault case is different and unique. Um, And we want to talk about that, too, because just as there are barriers for people reporting, there are also varied responses to the actual trauma of sexual assault, right? Mm -hmm. So trauma can really mess with our brains in a way that leads us to experience a lot of different feelings and emotions. For example, trauma can lead to depression, anxiety, thoughts of suicide, and so much more that... Honestly, this deserves its own episode, which we promise we will bring to you in the near future. But just for our purposes, it's really important to understand that trauma changes your brain chemistry. And, you know, that's a huge part in reporting. A lot of times survivors in reporting after a trauma will experience some things like fragmented memory, where they can't quite remember how things happened or in what order. They might experience mood changes that can be severe or be kind of out of the norm for that person. And another thing that can happen, which confuses so many people after assault, is they may have some odd behaviors. For example, 
For example, sometimes survivors will experience odd behaviors like laughing when everybody around them thinks that they should be sad or crying, or they may scream or be super angry when it's a calm situation. So a lot of these behaviors are simply based on the fact that their brain has been physically changed by the trauma they've endured. And yeah, while all of these things can be reasons why people choose not to report, I want to talk about just how, while yes, there are all these barriers as to why somebody can't or won't report or feels like they can't report it, when somebody does choose to report a crime against somebody else, it does then make it easier for other victims to come out and report because there's power in numbers. So like, for example, when we see people like Bill Cosby, Harvey Weinstein, Larry Nasser, as soon as one person came out against these people, it made it a lot easier for their other victims to come out and report against them as well because they knew they weren't the only ones who had experienced this thing. Or they knew that there were other people who would have their back and believe them because there were so many other people who did share those experiences or know what they experienced, or at least kind of know what they experienced. Most importantly, we want everybody to understand that it is never the victim's fault. It doesn't matter what they're wearing, how provocatively they're dancing, whether they're drinking or using drugs. Nobody is ever asking to be sexually assaulted. That's right. That's something that's really important for really everybody to understand, because whether or not we are victims ourselves, chances are we know survivors. And so that's something that in our jobs, we get asked a lot. Um, We get asked, you know, how do I support my loved one who's been assaulted? Um, And there's, there's a lot of things that are really helpful here. The first and most important thing to do if you know a survivor of sexual assault and they come to you and disclose this is to start by believing them. It sounds pretty simple and it's because it is. So when you say to them, I believe you, I believe that this happened, that validates their experience, right? The next thing that you can say is, I'm sorry this happened to you and it wasn't your fault. That lets the survivor know you're a safe person to talk to. And the third thing to say, is how can I help you? And what this question does is it puts the power back into the hands of your loved one. When somebody's been sexually assaulted, their power has already been taken from them. As a support person and as somebody who loves that survivor, it's not your job to take away more power and say, I'm taking you to the ER. I'm taking you to the police station. I'm taking you to X, Y, and Z. It's just not your job. What your job is, is to say, what do you need from me right now? And if what they need is resources, then help them get there. So we're going to talk a little bit about resources for survivors because we want everybody out there to know there are places to go if this has happened to you or somebody that you love. So there's a lot of resources that are available. For example, there are always going to be local sexual assault crisis centers. Um, There are hotlines that you can call. We have some posted at the end of our show notes. And there's also sexual assault nurse examinations that can be done following an incident of sexual assault if um, the victim decides that's the route that they want to take. And I also think it's important to note here, too, that if somebody does ask for resources and they don't utilize them, don't try to make them utilize them because part of their process is deciding if they want to actually use those things or not. So going back to what Ali said, if you give them resources and they don't choose to use them, and then you make them use them, you're taking their power away again. 
Right. And what we want our listeners to take away from today is that every survivor has a unique experience, which means that every survivor has their own path to healing on the journey from trauma. Absolutely. Well, thank you all for tuning in to our episode today. If you want to stay up to date with what we're doing and when episodes are going to be coming out, follow us on Facebook at Touchy Subjects Podcast. You can email us questions at touchysubjectspodcast at gmail.com. And you can follow us on Twitter at Touchy Subs Pod. All right. Join us in our next episode. And in the meantime, don't be afraid to challenge, ask, and discuss when it comes to touchy subjects.